Well, God has given us a beautiful weekend. I hope you're able to get out and enjoy uh, his creation. Some of you were battling the curse with weeds and things like that, but uh, it's still all, all from God's hand, and so we appreciate that. Um, today we're going to uh, look at the second part of our spiritual identity in Christ. And uh, as we do that, I do want to review for just a little bit here and remind us of some things. Um, and what I want to do first is remind us by reading Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 15. So we uh, do have that posted as far as you, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. We won't be going through this entire passage, but I wanted to read back a little bit so we give ourselves uh, context here. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to, to the cross." Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. As we consider this, uh, just a few thoughts here. The first is, is that the scriptures already showed us, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that we are complete in Christ because Christ is complete. Amen. He is God. Uh, there is nothing lacking in him. Uh, he is the, the, the Godhead fully residing in him. And so because of that, then Jesus makes us complete in him. And so that is why Paul is telling us this, and that's why he's emphasizing these things. Two weeks ago, we explored the origins of circumcision and concluded that it was instituted and practiced prior to the giving of the law. I'll go further to state that circumcision was never about justification in light of the law. It wasn't designed to save people. It was an outward physical sign given to Abraham and his offspring to remind them of the covenant God made with Abraham, a forever covenant. We were given uh, several passages regarding this, but I want to highlight one, which is Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So all of this background was to shed light on the concept that Paul introduced in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, which is that we have been spiritually circumcised by Christ. So what does that mean? That means that Christ's payment removed our sin. 
This identified us with the new covenant in Jesus, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. So our conclusion then is that we are identified with Christ through the spiritual circumcision of Christ, the cutting away of our sin based upon our faith in his finished work. So we're right in the middle of seeing what we might consider the behind-the-scenes activity of God in relation to the gospel. We're given the gospel, we're told who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and then we are to respond. But God has done a work in relation to that. He's done a work on our behalf. And so we're going to be seeing that this morning as we look at the next part of our study. So today, I want us to look at our identity in Christ through spiritual baptism. So what does this baptism in Colossians mean? Everything in the context is referring to the spiritual. Just like circumcision, Paul refers to the spiritual significance behind the symbolic ordinance of baptism. Uh, we read from Romans chapter 6, and I read that basically to lend support to Colossians 2, that he was speaking of a spiritual thing that was taking place. This cannot be speaking directly about water baptism because water baptism plays no part in our salvation. So let's take a closer look. There are two aspects of spiritual baptism. The first one is that we were buried with Christ. Of course, this implies that we died, right? Um, I'm not trying to be crass, but we, we don't bury people alive, all right? So what we're talking about here is having died. And it's clear that we did not physically die with Christ and lie in the tomb with Jesus. It's not what it's talking about. Instead, our death with Christ indicates our dying to sin. Second, we are resurrected with Christ. The focal point of the passage is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And again, we weren't present when Jesus rose from the dead. But the Father saw us in Christ. That's an amazing thought, folks. That when the Father sees us, the things that were happening with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that, that there was a part of that that involved us. And so that's what Paul is relating this to. Again, we weren't present when Jesus rose from the dead, but God the Father saw us in Christ. So it's important to note uh, three things as we think about this. There is no indication in this passage that baptism is a direct replacement for circumcision. Spiritual circumcision is brought alongside of spiritual baptism. This is significant because our Reformed brothers see baptism as replacing circumcision. They see it as now what the church does. This is what the Old Testament people did. This is now what the New Testament people do, and it just simply replaces circumcision. They combine the spiritual aspects that we see here of both and then force-fit them into physical baptism and say that all of this takes place when we are actually baptized physically. This results in justifying the practice of infant baptism as well as the other modes of sprinkling and pouring. But we have seen that although circumcision was adopted into the law, its direct link is to God's covenant with Abraham separate from the law. This is clear that both spiritual elements, circumcision and baptism, 
have their own significance within the passage. The spiritual picture of baptism reinforces the proper mode of baptism, the picture of spirituality between uh, spiritually being identified with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it clearly supports the physical, outward mode of immersion baptism. All right? So let's just, let's just say it in a little different way. If, in fact, there was a proper mode that the scriptures were trying to communicate, you would think that the talk about baptism would teach us that, right? Not just the word baptism, but how it is actually used. And here and in Romans, it is used talking about signifying the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if all of this language is about being baptized with Christ, about dying in him, being alive in him, rising with him, all those different things, then you would think, I hope you think, that the mode that we use of showing his death, burial under the water, and then rising up out of the water to signify his resurrection, that is the mode that is proper. And both circumcision and baptism signify here identification. Both of these things are identifying us with Jesus. Now, there's more to share about this, but I wanted to do this in a little bit different way. And what I want us to do is to see the work of God through Christ. The work of God through, through Christ. As we look at this passage, we kind of have to ask ourselves, who is doing what? There are a lot of pronouns. What we need to do is sort out these pronouns to help clarify the passage. So what I've done is, and it might be a little bit hard uh, for you to see, but um, I have, I have um, color-coded, um, there we go, I'll go back to them. I've color-coded Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Now, don't be as concerned about being able to read everything as much as looking and seeing who is doing what. So the pronouns for Christ are in blue, and the pronouns for the Father are in yellow. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, in Christ, who is the head of the principality and power. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Who? God the Father raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out of the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having kneeled it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So what I want to do next is to then further clarify We've dropped off a couple of verses just to concentrate on our verses for today. And instead of having him and, and those different things, I have added the Son and the Father. The Son and the Father. And then where it says here, as you can see, having someone doing an action, I have also put the person there. All right? So as you look at that, you can read that for yourself. I think it will be helpful to understand what the Son does and what the Father does. I want to be very clear. This is not to exalt or diminish one over the other. 
It's simply what the person in the Godhood did through this process, as this passage tells us. So we covered in our review that Christ cuts away our sin through spiritual circumcision. We also just covered spiritual baptism. But we see that our burial with Christ and our resurrection with Christ is the working of the Father in verse 12. The Father identified us with the Son in his death, and the Father also identified us with the Son when he raised him from the dead. That's significant, isn't it? It was God the Father who said, I am seeing you in what my Son is doing. He died to sin, you're there too. He raises again to life, you're there too. He sees us through what Jesus did. The language forms a parallel here, and it basically says that our faith was a work of God just as Christ's resurrection was a work of God. That's an important thing to note. That just as God raised us with Christ, God worked in us to produce that faith in us in Christ. He made us alive in that way as well. We also see that the Father forgave our sins. The Father wiped out, the scriptures tell us there, the handwriting of requirements. Now, I got myself ahead of myself here, so I want to just take a look at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. I just got these out of order a little bit, so I apologize about that. Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. This was the passage that we looked at, by the way, uh, in reviewing about circumcision. So it's interesting that we have uh, something coming from this passage again. So in the first 16 verses, and we'll narrow this down a little bit, I just want us to to get the scope of, of what God is doing on our behalf. It says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whatever... You, whoever you are, who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth because those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day, in the day of wrath and, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patience continuing in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are seeking self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we see here that there's a problem with both Greek, Gentile, non-Jew, and Jew, right? They're judged and they're judged righteously before God. So then he goes on. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So just to highlight this one thing here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Why am I highlighting this? Because we might look at the scriptures and say, well, okay, you know, we didn't know about the Old Testament law. How are we supposed to keep it? What God is telling us here very clearly is that there is a law that is written on every person's heart. And when we sin, we even violate that. So all the things that he was talking beforehand, oh man, general terms, when you judge other people, you're going to be judged by the same uh, way you judge. And you're going to fall short. And so he makes this case that whether Jew or Gentile, we have all that we need to know what to do to do it right. We choose not to. Okay? So I'm reading this to help us understand that this is what uh, Paul is referring to when he's talking about this handwriting of requirements. Okay? This handwriting of requirements is something that we have all been given. The Jews are condemned when they break God's law directly given to them, and the Gentile is is guilty when we, when we break the law that God has written on our hearts, the things that we just inherently know are right and wrong. We are all properly sentenced to death. These are the things that our Colossians passage says are against us, okay? God saw them written out, and the things that we did, those things were now against us, right? It's it's a sentence now. It's not just a way of living. Now it's like you failed. And so we measure up poorly. We measure up dead. We measure up. We don't measure up. That's a better way to say it, okay? We don't measure up. Now the meaning is spiritual, but Paul uses figurative language. But it represents something very real that happened. God erased the spiritual requirements of the law that stood in righteous judgment against us. Something I, I picked up in my studies that was really interesting, this comes from the practice of scraping the writing off of a papyrus sheet so that it could be used again. So you think of how valuable paper was back in the day. It wasn't all nice and you know, thin and smooth like ours is today. And so what they would do is, is they, would, they would scrape the writing off. They would erase it so they could use it again. So that's what God is doing. He's erasing it. Our Colossians passage goes on to say that the Father removed this barrier and kneeled it to the cross. Now, folks, let's, let's get a picture of this. This is a powerful image. Again, we need to keep in mind this is figurative language, but this was a real act that God did on our behalf. God the Father did. The practice of the day 
was that one being executed would have his crimes um, that he was to pay for posted above his head. We know that Jesus, when they, when they uh, crucified him, they put above him the king of the Jews. What did the Jews get upset about? It, it doesn't say on there he's claiming to be, right? Well, that is what he was executed for. So when Christ was nailed to the cross, spiritually speaking, the Father simultaneously posted our crimes, our sins. The image here is that God posted all of the charges against us on the cross to display what Christ paid for when he took our place. Folks, let this sink in. This graphically illustrates how God erased our sin by transferring the sentence to Jesus, his only begotten son who then bore the punishment for us. This is the picture that we have. God spreads out his word. He sees that it's against us. And instead of holding it against us, he puts it on Christ. We rightfully talk about what Jesus did for us. Right? He died for us. He rose again. We rightfully talk about the sacrifice that he made. But folks, this passage, as you see it illustrated, helps us to understand that this was a conscious choice of the Father. The Father was the one who had to be satisfied. That's what Jesus said. And so God the Father is the one who saw his requirements. He saw our sin. And instead of having us pay for our own requirements, Jesus paid it in full for us. So he sees us in his death. He sees us in his resurrection. So then we end this part of our study in verse 15, where he basically tells us, I'll just read it from here. Having disarmed principalities and powers, the Father made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. By the resurrection, of, by the resurrection God destroyed all spiritual powers. What the enemy thought was the destruction of Christ was the triumph of God and the total defeat of sin and death for all who believe. Isn't that an amazing thought? Imagine what Satan thought he had done. Imagine what, what he and his realm thought they had accomplished. Imagine what, even on a human level, what the Pharisees and Sadducees and those who hated Jesus thought they had done. He's dead. He's gone. He's done away with. It was just simply the means by which God glorified himself. And so we praise the Lord that as he sees us, he sees everything that Christ did for us, and he sees us right there with him. What I'd like to do next is talk about the identity in Christ through the new covenant. Now, there's going to be 
little bit of heavy stuff here, but we're going to look at this heavier stuff on the lighter side. Does that make any sense? A couple weeks ago, we talked about um, the, the, the circumcision in this passage. And we talked about the fact that it was a spiritual circumcision that ultimately the scriptures even foretold in the Old Testament that there would be, that there needed to be a spiritual circumcision, right? Last week, we talked about, and, and we talked about that covenant that God made with Abraham. Last week, we talked about covenant that God made with David. So I want to kind of bring these things together. I, I think it's relevant to our study here as we look at baptism, as we look at what Jesus did for us, as we look at even who we are and, and what we have in Christ, because that's, that's what Paul is really trying to get across to the Colossians. So as we bring these recent studies together, <clears throat> I want us to take a look at, um, at several covenants. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curse you. And, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As we have read in the past, we also know that part of that covenant was God giving Abraham a seed. You might remember that. So as we look at what's called the Abrahamic covenant, we have three elements to it. The land, the actual physical land that we would call Israel today. The blessing, okay, just being blessed by God, being favored by God, not because of anything Abraham did, but just because God wanted to show him his favor. And then we have that element of seed, that, that there was going to be not only uh, Isaac, who would eventually come, but there was going to be a whole nation come from him. And even beyond that, the scriptures tell us that many nations would come from Abraham. All right? So just kind of keep that in mind. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In your pew Bibles, it's, it's uh, page 273. Page 273, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me begin by reading in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. And let me just give you a quick context, very quick. David wanted to build God a temple. And the Lord said, no, that's going to be reserved for your son to come. But then he says to Nathan, who, who gave him this message, he says to him that he still wants to, to do something for him. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have seen with you, I'm sorry, been with you, <laughs> wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. 
that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make, make you a house. When, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity. Now, this is, there's a prophecy in the previous verse. This is not part of it, okay? This is a dual prophecy talking about the son that was to come physically but there was the prophecy beforehand that we looked at last week that was talking about the Christ who was going to be the forever king. This is talking about the not quite so forever king. Okay? So I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these things and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, you're looking at this passage, and so we call this the Davidic covenant, the covenant, the promise that God made to David. It was, again, a one-sided covenant. And so... um, before we get there, just a note, we have a Mosaic covenant in between. We'll get there in a minute. Davidic covenant. Was there land involved? Yes. He said, I'm going to plant my people in their land. Was there blessing that David said he was going to receive? Yes. And was there a seed? Yes. And we know elsewhere that this was promised that there would eventually be uh, someone sitting on his throne forever. Okay, this is not the only place that we see this. And so I want us to then move ahead to what we call the new covenant. The new covenant is something that Jesus said that he instituted when he was having the Last Supper with his disciples. And we're not going to take an exhaustive look at this, but I want us to go back to the Old Testament to show the character of this new covenant. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. You'll find that in your Pew Bibles in page 683. 683, Jeremiah 31. I know we're looking at a lot of passages here. Just keep in mind this idea of land, blessing, and seed. The nation, the blessings of God, and then the, the offspring that would come. Okay? So Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. By the way, we know that God's people are not in a good place as Jeremiah is talking with them. But he says to them, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That in and of itself is significant. He's talking about a covenant back to the entire nation. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from the land, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant, this is the promise that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, if I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Let's move on to another passage real quick. In Ezekiel. In your pew Bibles, verse, I'm sorry, page 752, Ezekiel 37. It's a similar passage, starting in verse 21. Ezekiel, my tongue is doing funny things today. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor will their detestable things nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I shall be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Okay, now that's obviously not talking literally of David. It's talking about his descendant. And they shall ha all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, what I read there is in relation to the Jews, but you're just going to have to trust me on this, folks. We know that this was also applied to the Gentiles. This was a spiritually based kingdom. And so when the, the, uh, the kingdom of, of God came, we know that there is a literal kingdom to come. But God is doing a work in people's hearts. And frankly, the reason why I'm not covering this so much is because the entire New Testament is talking about this. Okay? New Testament, New Covenant. Old Testament, Old Covenant. Same word. Okay? So everything that we see in the New Covenant is revealed to us in what we call the New Testament. So this is also for us. But there's still something that is going to be fulfilled. The point is... This is a spiritual kingdom. This is what God is bringing. And so what does he say? There is going to be a land, right? Now we know ultimately that land is, is, is the kingdom that God is going to establish and the new heavens and new earth. We know that there is blessing in relation to that. We saw the blessings throughout this passage. But there's also that seed. Not so much as far as perpetuating, but in fulfilling that there is going to be one, David, one like David, the son of David, Jesus, who is going to rule forever. All right? So here we have the covenant made centuries ago, centuries ago, to Abraham, as he initially called a people unto himself. 
And he told him, God told him, you're going to be a blessing to many nations. You're going to be a father of many nations, right? We see in Romans that ultimately we have the same faith Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed God and it was what? Credit to him for righteousness. Then we see the covenant with David. And really what it was was a little bit more specific, but it was an echo of the Abrahamic covenant. One-sided. I'm going to do this for you. And it included a land, blessing, and a seed, offspring. We see the same thing here in the new covenant. So, we, so if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, we read that Christ was the firstborn from the dead. So we look back last week as we remembered the resurrection of Christ. We're looking today at the resurrection of Christ, and we remind ourselves what we've studied, which is that Christ was the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That means there's going to be many, many more to follow after him. That's us. That's exactly what, who is being described here. Now, let's go back to the Mosaic Covenant. Was there a land involved? Yes. It was, they were tied to the land. If they weren't in the land, they weren't being blessed. The group that came out of Egypt, were they blessed? They rejected God. They never made it to the land. They all died. They all died without the blessing. The group that went in, they were blessed because they were in the land. And that's part of it, which is the blessing. The blessing's part of the covenant. But this is something that is extremely stark and very important to, for, to us to understand. And I think it's very helpful when we try to distinguish between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and it's this. There is no seed in the Mosaic Covenant. You won't find it. Think about it. Is there ever a promise of an individual doing something for you? No. It is always the person fulfilling their requirements before God. All those sacrifices were pointing to the new covenant. All those sacrifices were pointing to Christ and God's unilateral, one-sided covenant with man. Meaning that the Mosaic covenant was never designed to bring about life. Life comes through faith. Was it designed to guide us? Yes, Paul tells us that in Romans. But there was never any provision for life. There was no seed attached to it. There had to have been faith. There had to have been faith. And ultimately, the scriptures tell us that we are looking ahead to Jesus. We're looking ahead to when God would take man's sin away. So what does this mean for us? Christ removes our sin through the spiritual circumcision or cutting away of our sin. God baptizes us in Christ or 
spiritually identifies us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This happens when we place our faith in what Christ did on our behalf. This passage literally states that it happens based upon the acts of the Father. However, in God's mind, it has already been accomplished through Christ paying for our sins on the cross. Jesus is not being killed over and over again. It was all accomplished there. When he paid for sin once for all, he paid for all who would place their faith in him. Christ fulfilled the old covenant and the covenants that God made with Abraham and David, and he established a new covenant foretold by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, I know we haven't looked at every aspect of this, but folks, what I want us to see here is that as, as we are seeing these allusions to, to circumcision and to baptism, um, you know, yes, baptism is, is, is real, and it's something that we do in response to what Christ did for us. But what we're seeing here is, is behind the scenes, so to speak, as I mentioned, what God has done on our behalf. And it's a beautiful and amazing thing. He took that all away. He fulfilled all of that. Why? Because God made a covenant. He made a promise. He made a promise through Christ. And he's fulfilling that in Christ. So there's a couple of applications here. And one one is this. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like it's too far out of left field because because I I, I do think that that it's relevant. There's our identity with Christ, and then there is identity culture. The identity culture where we are now experiencing isn't about gender or race or orientation. It's about being consumed with an identity of self rather than someone finding their identity in Christ. And so, folks, I want us to understand something. It's a spiritual battle, and it is not new. It's just a new twist on the same old problem. Man wanting to justify how he wants to live apart from God. That's it. Name any sin. Name any act of pride. Name any act of defiance. It's all identity. (laughs) I want to be who I want to be Apart from you. That's what someone is saying when they reject God. It's just that simple. And let's not forget that for every one of us here who knows Christ as their Savior, there was a day, there was a time when that's exactly how we believed. But God took his requirements, spread them out, took all the ways that we violated those requirements and nailed those as the penalty that Christ paid. Nailed those on the cross. Wow. What an amazing salvation. And then just one more thing, the importance of baptism. This passage does not take away from the importance of the ordinance of baptism. Instead, 
It enhances why believers should be baptized and baptized by immersion. We testify to our faith in what Christ did for us spiritually, right? We're simply giving testimony of what Paul describes here as Christ's work on our behalf, as God the Father's work on our behalf through Christ. So as we're out in the world and we rub shoulders with those who want to maintain their own identity, let's not be surprised. It's, it's the way of the world. It's the way all of us are. It's that tug. It's that worldly pride that we have. Let's try to look past that and help people understand that it is a spiritual battle and that really what they need to do is they need to identify with Jesus. They need to identify with who he is. Now, does that mean that they can just go on sinning any way they please? We just read a passage in Romans that tells us, no, there's supposed to be a change that takes place based upon we ourselves saying, I am now a follower of Jesus. I trust what he did for me on the cross. I trust that as he rose again, that one day I will rise again with him. I trust that placing my confidence in what he did gives me life. And now in turn, I want to live my life for him which again then brings us to baptism. That's what physical baptism is all about. It's simply showing others, telling others, demonstrating for others where our trust lies in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So as Bob began our service, I just want to encourage you, if you have any spiritual questions, if you're, if you're here and you're like, I, I, I just... I've heard what has been said maybe this week or maybe many weeks, doesn't matter. I, I, I believe I understand the good news of Christ. I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but if you have questions, we want to be here for you. If you are a follower of Christ, you know that you are. But you also know that you need to publicly identify as his follower through the ordinance of baptism. Of baptism by immersion publicly that I want to encourage you to see one of us as well. But with all of us, I hope that we can just come away from this and understand that Jesus gave it all for us. But God the Father gave us the Son. He did a work through Christ that when we place our confidence in him, when we place our faith in him, when we trust that what he did removes our sin, it actually does. It's effectual. And so because of that, we don't want to live in it anymore. We want to please him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have studied a couple of fairly deep things, Lord, I pray that we've been able to understand it. And understand that through all that was taking place, ultimately your glory is what you had in mind. But you also had us in mind. Christ came so that we can have life. Christ died and rose again 
so that we can have life. We're not worthy. We will never be able to even now work at it so that we can somehow even still earn it. But yet, if we have placed our faith in you, and as you have, by your very promise, raised us from the dead in Christ, given us life, Lord, I pray that we will take this life then and live it out for you. In Christ's name, amen.